Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. We're not talking about that He has skill at certain things. When we talk about God being good, we mean that He's utterly pure. Utterly righteous. Utterly holy. Amen is right. That's to be celebrated. But that should also terrify us a little bit. Good men, just men, good men are to be feared. Why? Because they will not abide evil and the destruction that it brings. You can't really be good, a good man, a good person, and tolerate wickedness because it's destructive. I hadn't planned on starting with that. But we were singing about God's goodness, and it just got me thinking. And it connects really um, closely with something that's been in our culture and in the ethos of our uh, communities lately, and that's the idea of justice. You've probably heard a lot about justice in recent years. The word, the phrase social justice has become a phrase that is just permeates all of our society and all of our culture. And regardless of, whether you, of where you fall on these particular issues, none of us really can escape conversations about um, racism, LGBT rights, gender pay gap. Income inequality. These things just saturate, these ideas, these conversations, they saturate our culture. And we are interested and curious and often compelled to get involved in these conversations and sometimes fight about them and argue about them. We come from different perspectives, surely, But we have a strong desire to see justice in each of these areas done, regardless of where you fall on the perspective of how that justice is carried out or what that justice ends up looking like. C.S. Lewis explains this by saying that for every desire, the Christian has to believe that for every desire that people have, there's a satisfaction that is a real satisfaction that's out there. So when a baby cries because it's hungry, the satisfaction is that there actually is a real thing as food out there to satisfy the hunger. A duck wants to swim, and there is actually water to satisfy that craving. And we have a desire for equity 
And there is actually justice that satisfies that longing and that craving. But we don't always get justice. I'm thinking specifically of the case of James V. Taylor, who in February of 2005, he and his wife um, encountered what should have been a routine traffic stop. And for whatever reason, the police ended up searching his car, and they found some drug paraphernalia in the car. A pipe and what uh, the news articles describe as an amount of drugs that was so small it could not be weighed. In other words, just residual. And in 2007, James V. Taylor was sentenced to 15 years in prison. 15 years in prison for that offense. Now, there's probably some competing thoughts going on and competing ideas going on inside of you. One of those thoughts is, well, well, he did have something wrong, right? He, He did have things that he shouldn't have had. But I'm hoping there's also the competing uh, idea or thought in you of, but that's not fair. That sentence doesn't seem to fit the crime. Not to me. It seems wildly disproportionate to the offense. And what's interesting about this case of James V. Taylor is I think that it encapsulates what we struggle so much with about hell. Is it fair that we commit crimes, sins here on earth? And we, I mean, I think we can all admit that we're sinners. Interestingly, James V. Taylor said in a news article when he was interviewed, hey, I I did it. I did something wrong. I was guilty. I was definitely guilty. But he was able to acknowledge the injustice of the punishment not fitting the crime. And I think that's what we have to wrestle with, with the notion of hell. In the words of the, uh, uh, in her book, um, Rebecca McLaughlin asks the question. She's, she uh, wrote a book about the 12 most common objections to Christianity. Confronting Christianity is the name of the book. And one of the questions she asks is, how can a loving God send people to hell? And that's really the crux of our difficulty with hell, isn't it? That we have a loving God, and what uh, seems to be an internal and horrific punishment and whether the punishment fits the crime of humanity. And so that's what, that's what we have to balance here in this conversation about hell. God's love, God's goodness, the need for justice, and human autonomy. Those things all have to be accounted for if we're to make sense of this understanding of hell. 
Now, there's no doubt that the Bible talks about hell and that hell is punishment for sin. Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven in Scripture. And the Old Testament and the New Testament both describe this place of torment and fire. And we can have conversations about whether the fire and the torment is literal or whether it's metaphorical. But I think regardless, it is clearly a place that no one really wants to be and end up. And it, it is um, kind of the uh, ultimate description of what it means to be utterly and completely separated and cut off from God and the goodness of God. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to balance these different um, ideas and concepts that make it really difficult for us. In today's culture especially, the culture where everyone is to be accepted and embraced just as they are, the culture, quite frankly, where we're really good at denying just how difficult and tragic and brutal life on this earth can be. We try to keep everyone safe and make sure no one you know, suffers consequences. And you know, there's phrases like helicopter parenting, you know, and combat helicopter parenting and whatever is worse than combat helicopters and parenting. And we have a we we live in this very sterilized view of the world. When in actuality, life is pretty brutal. Can be pretty brutal. And I think that's, that makes it in part harder for us to, to kind of grasp the concept of hell and the idea of hell. In the, in the time of the earliest books of the Bible being written up through the New Testament, life was such that people really understood it just takes one little mistake to bring utter ruin to a person or a family or a community. I mean, they were living for survival in those times. And we have wealth and technology and education that changes our understanding of the world. And I think maybe that has sanitized or sterilized our view of, of hell and what it means. So what I want to do today, this morning, is not necessarily solve the problem of hell for you. I don't know that that's possible. Much, much sharper minds than mine have been trying to solve this problem for years, decades, centuries, have been trying to figure out how do we reconcile all of these things. So what I want to do is I want to give you a few keys, a few principles or ideas that might help you better reconcile better balance these competing ideas. And then I want to try to end with a place that we can rest in certainty that will help us with this idea. So first of all, I want to talk with you about just the Christian context in general and how it helps us. 
So, so just keep in mind, what is the story of history and the story of humanity in relationship with God? Well, so God creates the world. He creates human beings. And He creates them in such a way that they are able not to sin. That was the initial state of humanity. Able not to sin. And He gave humanity... You know, something that, you know, some people uh, may question God's wisdom in this. But he gave humanity free will. Right? He created people with the ability to choose, make genuine choices for themselves. And so almost immediately, it would seem from the Scriptures, what did Adam and Eve do? They made some wrong choices, right? I mean, really, he just gave them one instruction, don't eat the fruit. And so immediately it seems like they just went and ate the fruit. And I, I kind of get that, you know, because if someone tells me don't touch that, the first thing I want to do is I want to touch that thing, right? There's something within us that kind of compels us to seek that thing that's forbidden. Was that the initial start of the fall? I don't know. But then the whole of history from that moment forward is the story of God's efforts to redeem. That's all of history. He calls Abraham. He sets apart the nation of Israel. He raises the kingdom of Israel and lifts up the, the king, David, who was a wildly flawed man. And all of that is culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ, whose death and sacrifice on the cross was penalty for that sin, payment for that sin. And we learn along the way why it's so important that there was such a, an extreme penalty. Because can you imagine what the world be, would be like without a system of justice? It's no, it's no good system when people who really do commit evil go unpunished and the wrongs go uncorrected. That's no good system. And so the context is that God creates us for community and fellowship and relationship with Him. And we failed. Humanity, we failed. And our failure is what brought sin and death into the human condition. Our failure and separation from God. What was the thing that God asked as soon as He came into the garden after Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit? Where are you? They had been separated and cut off. Remember I said that hell was an, a complete sep, an utter separation from God and His goodness. So to phrase the question, how can a loving God send people to hell, actually intentionally or unintentionally, 
frames the situation incorrectly, doesn't it? It's not God sending. It's that we chose. We chose. We chose to be separate and apart. And He reaches out and draws us back. He draws us back. And that's what he's been doing throughout history ever since, trying to draw us in. It's good that he created us with autonomy. It's good that he created us able to make the choice because that is the value that he bestows upon us. But it's also necessary that we have the justice because that is the value that is bestowed upon himself. If God is good, then he must be valued. His righteousness, his holiness must be valued. John 3.16, this is one that we all know well. This is a passage of Scripture that tells us kind of the essence of God's plan, I guess you would say, in light of the fall. We know this part well. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Stands condemned already. That's the description of what happened to us when we fell, when that sin came in. Could we trust and could we believe in and could we respect a God who was not able to prioritize or stand up for or make valuable His own righteousness, His own loveliness, His own holiness? I said earlier, good men are to be feared because they can't abide evil. Imagine the need for God or the way that that would manifest in a divine being. Not just a man, not simply a person, a human being. So we have this Christian context, right, that lays the foundation. It's not God sending people to hell, but it's the choice that we have made as Creatures who were created, able not to sin, who have chosen to go astray. And we have this context of God's pursuit of us and drawing after us. The, the next part that we have to balance is, God, is the idea of justice. And I think sometimes that we forget the gravity of sin. We forget the gravity of sin. 
I want to read Romans chapter 1 to you. A few verses from Romans chapter 1. Um, starting with verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The wrath of God on all of the unrighteousness and wickedness of humanity. We think that what happened to James V. Taylor is unjust because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. But what about people for whom the punishment does fit the crime who are sentenced to 15 years? What about people who we often think of as those who are worthy of hell? Probably some notion of who that might be has popped into your mind. The serial killers. The people who have led countries into slaughtering hundreds, thousands, millions of others. Sexual predators. We see that there are some crimes that do deserve harsh, intense punishment. And we also see that it's good that it is so. The issue just is a matter of what is a deserving punishment for sin. And if we think that sin is just about the wrongs that we commit to each other or to ourselves, then we're missing the way that Scripture identifies sin, and that is that all sin is, a, is an offense to God Himself. That He would create us as being able not to sin and made in His image, the very likeness of himself. And we would mar and spoil that image of God. I think we don't often realize the gravity of that. And part of the reason that we don't realize the gravity of that is because we're operating from a human perspective. And we've just got our own, we've just got our own perspective to go on. And so when we're down here in the earth and we're looking around, we look at people like whoever, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, and we say, those people are good. Those are good people. Humanitarians, you know, people who are giving their lives for, in service of others. Owners of ministries that help the poor or the homeless or the unfortunate victims of abuse, things like that. We look at those and say, those are good people. 
And then we look at the other end of the spectrum, the guys I talked about before. <laughs> we say, yeah, those are bad people. So those people deserve, and these people don't deserve, but we're standing in this frame of reference right here. But what if we back up and we put, you know, because that's kind of a continuum, right? Mother Teresa's up here and she's good and Hitler's down here and he's bad. You know, so people that are kind of like on this end of that little continuum, they're the ones who deserve hell. And everybody else is like, well, wait a minute now, we we don't really deserve hell because we're all up here, right? You know? But if we back that up, let's say we zoom out and we put God on that continuum. Do you know what that does to the continuum all of a sudden? It puts Hitler over here. And then it puts Mother Teresa like right here. And then God's way over here. Way over here. Way over here. Now how do Mother and Teresa and Hitler look on this continuum? They look almost equally guilty, don't they? And that's a matter of perspective. Because God's holy... I mean, then this doesn't even do it justice. Because this is still a continuum of goodness. And God is perfection. Well, that changes the game a little bit, doesn't it? That changes the perspective. Maybe I'm not actually as good as I think I am. Maybe my sins and my crimes are worse than they actually think they are in comparison with an utterly and completely pure and holy God who has made us, not just as His creatures, but made us in His image. In His image. And now understanding justice in this way, it makes a little bit more sense why the penalty may be so harsh. And then I think that you have to take into consideration, so we've got the context of what God has done, creation. We've got the reality of justice. And what justice really is, and what it really looks like, at least a little bit closer to a, div- a divine perspective on that. And then we take our own humanity and our own autonomy into consideration. My children, as they grow and as they develop, just like me, when I was growing up, are going to make mistakes. And they're going to make choices that I disagree with. And they're going to choose to do things and engage in things that I know that are really horrible for them, just like I did. And because I love and value them, I am not going to force them to do otherwise. 
Let me say that again. Because I love and value them, I am not going to force them to do otherwise. I value them enough to allow them to choose for themselves. And God honors our choices. He values us. He bestows worth on us by allowing us to choose our own way. C.S. Lewis said, there's ultimately only two kinds of people in the world. There are people who say to God, thy will be done. And there are people to whom God says, thy will be done. And Lewis thought that hell was full of the second. Those people who refused God and His way and chose it for themselves. That's a harsh reality. But every parent knows that our children may go astray. They may choose things that are not good for them. They may choose paths that lead them to destruction. I've had too many parents in my office who have had children who became addicts or chose to do things that resulted in an early death. And part of parenting is letting go of that. Letting go of the need to control. But the other part of that is that our capacity as human beings for self-deception is also nearly infinite. (laughs) And we can deceive ourselves into not seeing and accepting and receiving those things of God. And that that makes us accountable. The idea that, um, as we read in Romans, That since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain, and yet we often deceive ourselves. And that's part of the human condition as well. Now, one last thing that I want to throw into here as we are trying to kind of tie some of this up. And this is the part that is really, really the most difficult, I think. Because when we see sin for what it is, and we understand the way that we have chosen to go as human beings, we can see that there is a a severe punishment that we're all deserving of as a result of our sin, our crime against God, our crimes, our multitude of crimes against God. But the real hard thing is that it doesn't seem to match with God's love. God's graciousness. This is part of what made James Taylor's case so difficult, right? 
not only that the punishment didn't seem to match the crime, but that we know that somewhere in that system there was a judge who actually personally issued the sentencing. And you want to say, where was the mercy? Where was the compassion? Where was this person who had the power to mitigate the sentence or reduce it or make it fair or equitable or what have you? Where was he? The loving nature of God. And there's a lot of different theories about how these things fit together that are trying to reconcile this. One example of, of this may be the idea of the annihilation of the unrighteousness of the unrighteous. So the idea that those who are sinful and never accept God, that they ultimately will be consumed by hell and they will not suffer forever in torment. That's, that's one idea. But I think one of the things that is really important is that we recognize the love of God for what it is and that we see it as a way to help ourselves to be confident that hell is good that hell is just and here's what i mean by that these seem to be these two ideas seem to be in contradiction that god is loving and that also he would allow people to go to hell whether he's sending them or, or not that he would allow people to go to hell because for me I know personally for my children if I thought that it could rescue them I would go to the ends of the earth. I would descend into hell itself. For my children. And I know that God loves us far beyond my earthly love as a father. And so I don't actually know what the answer is, but I know that these things can be reconciled, and if we have the right understanding, they will be. And look, this is not too hard of a thing to ask for you to trust in the mysteriousness of God. It's not. We do it every day. We're going to come way up into the intellectual realm for just a second here. Light. Everybody knows what light is, right? Okay, makes, makes all that we see possible for us to see. Do you know that we don't know what light is? Did, did you know that? We don't know what it is. Sometimes it acts like a wave, like sound waves. But other times it acts like a particle, 
like little pieces of stuff that shoots out. Are we to believe, or should I, I would rather say, are we to abandon our belief that light exists? Because we can't figure out how to reconcile the fact that sometimes it acts like a wave and sometimes it acts like a particle? No. So neither should we abandon our belief in a loving God because we don't understand how to reconcile God is love and hell exists. What we do is we trust the person of God. When we have experienced His love, when we know how He has redeemed us and how He has called us and how He has pursued us, we trust the person. And that's a different kind of knowledge. But we trust in that. That God is love and He cares for us. And I want to read one more passage. I've never really thought of it like this until I was um, until I was um, preparing this sermon. This is Psalm one thirty nine. You probably know this psalm, or at least parts of it, pretty well. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. I wonder if God pursues, even into hell, redemption. For his children. He will not make us come to him. But if I if I would pursue my children into hell to redeem them, then perhaps God will too. The rest is mystery. So what we're going to do today to conclude our time is we are going to lean into the part of the mystery that we are certain of. And that is the love of God and the way that He has brought us into His family, 
here in this world through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, 5, so we're going to do that through communion, through the Lord's table. In Isaiah 53, 5, start with four actually. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This we are certain of. That Christ has come. That he has given his blood and his body on our behalf. And so I would invite you to participate. Take the elements. And we, this morning, would say, Lord Jesus, thank you for your body. It was broken for us. It was broken so that we could have assurance now in salvation. Our escape from hell and death and the grave. receive it, Lord, your body broken for us. Amen. And we take the juice, the blood of Christ. We say, Lord Jesus, we thank you. For your blood that was spilled for us, it was poured out so that we could be washed clean. Our sin cast as far away from us as the east is from the west. We are so grateful for your mercy and your love, Father. This evidence of your love toward us, the sacrifice of your son Jesus Christ on our behalf. Who bore all of our sin and the wrath and the punishment poured out on him. Jesus, we thank you. We do this in remembrance. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your love, and we thank you for your justice. Your holiness, your righteousness will not be minimized. It will not be dismissed. 
when we say you are good. We are speaking of your purity, your moral, ethical holiness and perfection. We may still have questions, Lord, about hell. But we're so grateful that you have made plain and clear to us if we will turn from self-deception, if we will turn from our own understanding of our own and our reliance on our own goodness, that you have shown us the way back into full, beautiful, glorious relationship. We thank you for your salvation from ourselves, our own sin, and the punishment of hell, death, and the grave. We honor you. We love you for that, Father. We pray these things. again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.